Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. I'm your host and Bible guide, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you to Genesis chapter 2. Before we begin reading the text, we should probably address a contention that many people make nowadays in an effort to avoid some of the apparent difficulties that exist between the scientific account of origins and what we find in the Bible. Many Christian folks will say that we must read and interpret Genesis 1-3 to differently than we interpret other sections of the Bible. And they will say that we we need to do this because Genesis 1 to 3 is clearly intended to be understood as poetry. It's a sort of poetic parable explaining origins in general terms, but it should not be read as history. And that allows people to more or less pick and choose what they want to believe and what they want to discard under pressure from culture and science. But however attractive that option may be, it doesn't accord with what we see in the text. E.J. Young, the Old Testament scholar from Westminster Seminary, who probably studied these three chapters more than just about anyone else that I can think of, he wrote a whole book on Genesis 3 and another book on Genesis 1 to 3, and numerous articles on everything in the book of Genesis puts it plainly. So he knows what he speaks, and he puts it this way. He says, Genesis is not poetry. There are more poetical accounts of creation in the Bible, such as Psalm 104, certain chapters of Job, and they differ completely from the first chapter of Genesis. Hebrew poetry has certain characteristics, and they are not found in the first chapter of Genesis. So the claim that Genesis 1 is poetry is no solution at all. The man who says, I believe Genesis purports to be a historical account, but I do not believe that account is a far better interpreter of the Bible than the man who says, I believe Genesis is profoundly true, but it is poetry, end quote. Genesis is not poetry. It doesn't present itself as poetry. It doesn't have any of the characteristics of Hebrew poetry. It presents itself as history. Now, certainly it is unusual history, because God is intervening very dramatically in cosmic and human affairs, But it is not poetry, and it is not allegory, and it is not a parable. It presents itself in straightforward Hebrew prose. Now, in terms of the relationship between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, it seems that what is happening here is that we are zooming in. Genesis 2 is a zoomed-in account of the creation story with its focus exclusively now on the creation of the man and the woman. So think of it maybe like Google Earth. The first chapter gives you the big picture, like looking at the world from space. And then chapter two zooms down to street level and tells you in detail the story of the first man and the first woman. And this is a further reminder that human beings represent the pinnacle of God's creative order. We are not just animals. We are exalted creatures. We are the object of God's special and particular care. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. 
So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. I love what Derek Kidner says about this text. He says, It is the rest of achievement being spoken of here, not inactivity. For he nurtures what he creates. We may compare the symbolism of Jesus seated after his finished redemption to dispense its benefits. Closed quote. I love that. The Jews rested on the seventh day under the old covenant because God had completed a work that they were invited to enjoy. On the seventh day, they entered into the rest of God's achievement to experience that and to rejoice in all of its benefits. Christians in the new covenant rest in what Jesus did on the first day of the week. Thus, the book of Hebrews says, we who have believed enter that rest. Just as God rested after achieving the work of creation and invited us to share in that rest, so Jesus sat down at the right hand of the Father, having completed his work of redemption, and he now invites us to enter into that rest and to enjoy its benefits. So worship, then, is fundamentally about enjoying what God has done, resting in his benefits and blessings, and expressing our thanks and gratitude. Let's jump in, into the text again at verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. Notice the care and intimacy of this description. In Genesis chapter 1, God creates by divine fiat. He speaks, Vayomer Elohim, and we have light, sky, land, plants, animals, and people. But here we learn that God doesn't just speak the man into being. This act of creation is far more tactile. God forms the man out of the dust of the earth and breathes into him the breath of life. There is touch here. There's even a kiss here. This is a special act. And again, it expresses the incredible gap between humanity and the other animals. God doesn't do this for the monkeys or the squirrels or the dolphins. This is an intimate act. This is a familial act, and it reminds us that human beings are incredibly exalted creatures. Verse 8 says, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We spoke yesterday about this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It, it clearly represents the moral freedom that was given to the man and the woman. Now, the fact that it is a, a symbol does not mean that it wasn't a real tree. A thing can be real and have symbolic value. For all we know, this could have been a pineapple tree. All we know is that God said that it was out of bounds and that eating from it would require them to believe themselves independent 
of the word of God. We'll talk more about that later. Verse 10 says, A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon, and it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bdellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The point here is that the garden is good, and it has within it everything that humanity might need to accomplish the cultural mandate. We're going to hear about that cultural mandate in just a second. Verse 15 says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. The job of human beings is to work with the natural resources that God has generously provided. Human beings are told to have dominion and to cultivate, that is to impress their own personality and sense of beauty on the raw materials they've been given. So they can take wood and make tables, they can take fibers and make carpets, they can carve instruments, make tools, build houses, towns, cities, and eventually a culture. God welcomes the man into the ongoing work of creation, but that work is supposed to be done in submission to the binding authority of God's word. We hear about that in verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So, man is an exalted creature. Man is a ruling creature, but man is not an autonomous creature. We are subject to the word and will of God. Now, you need to notice here that in this zoomed-in telling of the story of the creation of human beings, the man was created first. We're about to get to the story of Eve's creation, but as of verse 17, she's not yet on the scene, which means that she was not present when God gave his word of command to the man. So obviously part of Adam's job was to steward and communicate the word of God to his family. That fact will become very important when we get to chapter 3. But for now, let's jump back into the text of verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, this is the first time that anything in God's creation is called not good. Up until this point, everything has been good, and some things have been very good, but now this is not good. It is not good for the man to be alone. Human beings are communal creatures. We desire intimate relationships, and that's a good thing. That's a God thing. That is something that God hardwired into the human species. You were made for intimate relationships, one intimate human relationship in particular. God says, I will make a helper fit for him. Now, some people today don't like the word helper. It almost makes it sound like the woman was created to be the man's servant. But that isn't what the word means. In fact, in the Bible, the most common referent for that word is God himself. God is often called our helper because he is the one who is strong in all the ways that we are weak. That's what the word means. It means that God created the man with strategic deficiencies, not imperfections, 
just deficiencies that would draw him into a relationship with a woman. God makes men and women with a lean, hardwired in, such that we are inclined to seek out one another. I think that's beautiful. I think that is helpful and liberating. I I think it means that we don't have to be good at everything. We just need to find our corresponding part. We have to find the helper that is fit for us, the one who is strong where we are weak, the one whose lean leans into us. My wife and I have a saying, it takes two people to live one good life. You can borrow that if you like, because we stole it from the Bible. That is precisely what this verse is saying. Verse 19 says, Now, out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. Now, I think this is a display of the fatherly wisdom of God. God shows Adam a whole bunch of bad options before presenting him with the partner of his dreams. God in his wisdom stirs up a sense of need so as to ensure that his daughter will be properly appreciated. And so she would be. Verse 21 says, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called Woe Man, because she was taken out of man. Adam rejoices over the wife that God has given him. He understands their essential unity. She is woman because she was taken out of man, as men will be taken out of women. There is an essential interdependence woven into the story that we have lost in our culture. This story says that men and women are creatures of remarkable dignity. It says that they are not the same. They are marvelously and helpfully different. They need each other, and they rejoice in each other. Verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Listen, my friends, sex was not the first sin. Sex between a man and his wife is never a sin. It was part of their essential innocence. It was part of their holiness. The man and the woman rejoiced in what God had given. They enjoyed the permission and kindness of the Lord as found in the body and soul of the other. They were naked and unashamed. That is a good place. That is a good gift. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to Into the Word. If you're interested in additional resources or previous episodes and series, you can find those over the website at www.intotheword.ca. You can also check us out on Facebook, and I hope you do. We have a growing community of Bible readers over there, and we post daily encouragements and conversation starters. Hope to see you there. And hope to see you again tomorrow, right here for another episode of Into the Word. Before.